Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm Paul Hodes with my co-host, Matt Robeson. We're broadcast on WKXLAM and FM. We are streamed live at nhtalkradio.com and podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Please visit our website at beyondpoliticspodcast.com. Subscribe to our podcasts because we will love you if you do. Well, the big news on COVID last week was the decision by the CDC and FDA jointly to recommend, quote, out of an abundance of caution, quote, a nationwide halt to the single shots rollout. The two agencies are investigating a rare blood clotting disorder uh, in the six cases reported so far out of approximately 7 million doses administered all in the United States, women ages 18 to 48 developed an unusual type of blood clot within about two weeks of receiving the J&J one and done inoculation. Our guest today is here to walk us through what all of this means for where we are in the fight in the pandemic. Dr. Angela Rasmussen is a virologist. She's studying host responses to infection, and she's doing her work combining classical virology with modern systems biology approaches. She's an active and outspoken science communicator who's written for Forbes, Foreign Affairs, Slate, The Guardian, and Leaps Mag. She's appeared many times in media outlets, not just this one, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, National Public Radio, ABC, NBC, CNN, CBC, and BBC. Now, last week, she appeared in a really good explanatory article on the J&J vaccine by Catherine Wu in The Atlantic. So uh, given the family and constellation of media outlets that she has appeared in, we're very happy to have her here with us on Beyond Politics. Dr. Rasmussen, welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So let me just jump right in by, by telling you on March 8th, my wife and I got the J&J vaccine. Um, I'm not female and I'm not between 18 and 48. She is female over the age of 48. Neither one of us experienced significant uh, issues or any uh, symptoms following our shots. We were feeling really good about getting the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. One and done, no second jab, all good. Lot, you know, hugs and kisses all around. And now this, was this pause warranted in your view? So I do think that it was. Um, some of my colleagues disagree because they're concerned that this does appear to be extremely rare. Um, and, uh, and similar uh, adverse effects have been reported for the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is not authorized, <clears throat> pardon me, which is not authorized here in the U.S., uh, but is authorized in Europe and Canada. Um, and that side effect for that vaccine also appears to be extremely rare. Um, but my feeling is that 
even for a very rare side effect, it is a very serious side effect. So what, what this is, is a condition uh, called um, cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. It's essentially a very specific type of stroke. Um, and one thing that's distinguishing about it is that unlike other cases of CVST, this particular type of stroke, it's also associated with a really low platelet count, um, which gives us a little bit of a clue as to what might be causing this. Because, however, this is a life-threatening condition, and one of those six cases unfortunately resulted uh, in the death of the person who suffered this condition, I think that it does make sense to, to pause the administration of this vaccine and just look into the data some more to see if there are any other uh, types of blood clotting disorders that are associated with this uh, thrombocytopenia or low platelet count, and also to see if there's any cases that we've missed, because we really do want to understand how, how rare this is before recommending the vaccine to everybody. And if it is like the AstraZeneca vaccine, um, many of those other countries in which that vaccine is authorized have now changed the recommendations about who that vaccine should go to. So in many European countries and in Canada, the AstraZeneca vaccine is being recommended for people who are over the age of 55. Um, in the UK, uh, they've offered an alternative, the Pfizer vaccine to people under the age of 30 who would otherwise get the AstraZeneca vaccine. So I think it makes sense, given that we have two other vaccines right now authorized in the US um, for use that have no safety signal associated with them to, to just take a quick break to make sure we can look at all of the data and make sure we understand what's happening here and what the risks really are. And the second reason um, I, I think that the pause is warranted is that it's actually not going to affect the overall vaccination uh, rollout that much. Um, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which I got too on April 5th, is very convenient um, and it's good for vaccinating some people who aren't able to get to traditional vaccine centers, people who might be homebound, uh, people who might be without a home, people who might be living in communities that don't necessarily have access to the type of freezers and, and cold storage that the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines require. But there was a few weeks ago uh, a problem at the manufacturing plant in Baltimore that resulted in a loss of 15 million doses of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So we were already looking at a shortage of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So we're really not missing out on a lot of shots in arms by, by just pausing this for a week to 10 days. Uh, let me just follow up because I'm, I'm curious, um, since you're a person of vast experience and knowledge on the subject, in, in the case of other vaccine rollouts, is what we have seen or are seeing with this kind of pause, which uh, the Atlantic article said uh, placed the J&J &J vaccine in a regulatory purgatory, although Matt and I prefer the term regulatory limbo. Is this unusual uh, in vaccine rollouts? And, or is this something that is unique in this case because this was delivered so quickly? So it's actually not unusual um, for vaccines or for drugs uh, to give a safety signal after they've been rolled out to the general population. Um, and then to, to be paused and reevaluated and potentially recommended for only specific groups. It's actually rare that something gets pulled off the market entirely, 
But normally the FDA's function um, does not end when a vaccine or a drug is approved and sent to the market. And even though in this case, this vaccine has an emergency use authorization instead of a full FDA approval, the, the regulatory process and oversight is essentially the same. You can't detect really, really rare side effects for any drug or any vaccine in a phase three clinical trial that enrolls 30,000, 40,000 participants. If we're talking about things that happen, you know, one in every 100,000, one in every 1 million doses administered, you're not going to pick that up in a clinical trial of that size. So the FDA will normally monitor uh, safety of any product that it is uh, overseeing. And yes, they have uh, paused administration of some drugs and vaccines in the past to try to understand better if really rare side effects are actually associated with the, the vaccine or drug um, and then make recommendations accordingly. In the Atlantic article in which your commentary and guidance was featured, you said that if the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is ultimately recalled, it would be a disaster, adding that we need all the doses we can get. Now, you did say a moment ago that it would be unlikely for the J&J &J vaccine to be recalled. That's not usually the, the path that these kinds of situations go down. But if it were recalled, would it be a disaster because of the loss of those doses or because of greater vaccine hesitancy or because of the inability to reach certain populations that you outlined before? What's the biggest problem that would come out of that? I think it's really all of the above. Um, I think that in the short term, again, we're facing uh, an immediate issue anyways with supplies of Johnson & Johnson. Um, right now, uh, the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices, which met on Wednesday, was talking about the, the national vaccine supply. And right now we have about 13 million doses of Johnson & Johnson available um, 9 million of those are actually available for administration right now, and about 4 million of those are can be made to order, and they, it can, they can be shipped out. Um, so that's not very many when you consider that Moderna and Pfizer are each putting out uh, about 14 million doses per week. Um, so right now, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine isn't going to have the pause, is not going to have a long-term effect on the use of this vaccine. But over the long term, if it were completely recalled, yes, then it would be disastrous, um, not only because of vaccine hesitancy. I think a recall of any of the vaccines that have gotten emergency use authorization would really uh, make people doubt the process by which they were authorized and evaluated. And one thing I think that people didn't understand, and some of this is the unfortunate choice of warp speed language, um, that, that gave people the impression that we were cutting corners uh, in terms of being able to evaluate the safety and efficacy of these vaccines. And we actually really didn't cut any corners as far as that was concerned. We just did some of the processes that normally are performed sequentially during vaccine development at the same time. Uh, so we did, for example, preclinical studies in animals at the same time that we did phase one clinical trials. In some cases, we combined phase one and phase two clinical trials, uh, but we did do phase three clinical trials with the full number of patients that we normally would, would do those trials in. So the, the data that the FDA evaluated was actually pretty complete and pretty comparable. Um, I think that 
long term, uh, I think that not only would hesitancy because of this lack of confidence in the process and the regulatory process that's needed to bring these vaccines to the public um, would be a problem, but also globally, this would be a huge problem because Johnson and Johnson and AstraZeneca both don't require the type of cold chain uh, that the mRNA vaccines made by Pfizer and Moderna do require. So they can be distributed globally. And COVAX, the WHO's um, global vaccine initiative has placed about a third of their orders for, for the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. So taking this vaccine off the market completely um, would, would really be devastating, not only in terms of being able to reach people who can't access the mRNA vaccines in the US, but people who can't access those mRNA vaccines uh, on a global scale, and that would be catastrophic. Speaking of vaccine hesitancy, we wanted to ask you about that. It was our sense last week that the messaging around this was just unfortunate. Now, obviously, Paul is a former member of Congress. I'm a former congressional staffer. We are not medical professionals. And as you've outlined, it does seem like the pause was medically warranted. But our concern that's been echoed by many commentators is that this really is going to cast some serious doubts in the minds of people who are already trying to reach when it comes to achieving that 70, 80% immunization rate that we want for herd immunity. Dr. Martin Blazer, the director of the Center for Advanced Biotechnology and Medicine at Rutgers, and one of the investigators in the J&J vaccine's pivotal trial was quoted in the Wall Street Journal just today saying, if people are hesitant, this isn't going to make them any happier, at least in the short run. So in your view, did the CDC, even if they got the science of this right, could they have handled this any better? Is there a better way that they could have communicated about this? Well, you know, this is kind of the million dollar question and I don't envy the position that the CDC and the FDA are in because they're really kind of damned if they do and damned if they don't. Um, if they didn't say anything and just decided to quietly investigate this behind the scenes, then that also could really undermine, I think, trust and confidence in the vaccine. If people found out only later that this was a severe side effect, that that at least one person died as a result of this, and it, it was linked to the vaccine, then everybody would say, see, you can't trust this process because the CDC and the FDA aren't being transparent. They didn't tell us about this. They, they knew about this you know, back in April and they didn't act on it. Um, I think that it, it just, it's really a terrible situation for them to be in. And it's not a situation that they're normally in because even though, again, this is a normal part of the regulatory process, usually the eyes of the nation are not fixed upon, you know, the, the new painkiller drug that's just come out or the new blood pressure medication that's just come out. Right now, everybody's, you know, clamoring to get a vaccine and of the people who are not clamoring to get a vaccine, they're looking for any excuse to undermine the process in many cases. The anti-vaccine movement um, is really, really good at, at diminishing confidence in vaccines in general, and they look for situations like this to exploit. I think that the CDC and the FDA did do the right thing for a couple reasons. One, um, I was really impressed on Wednesday with the ASIP, uh, this advisory committee meeting, um, and how transparent they were. It was completely open to the public. Everybody who wanted to watch um, 
could could see the same data that the ASIP was evaluating. Uh, the the deliberations of the committee were completely public. So everybody got a chance to see what they were talking about, how they were making that decision uh, to continue pausing it. And, and the same will be true next Friday when they have another meeting to go over the data that they've assembled in, in the intervening week and a half. Um, so I think that that transparency is really important uh, for long-term building trust um, in these institutions. But I think it's just a, it's a really unfortunate situation and it's a really terrible situation for them to be in because I don't think, you know, whatever they decided to do, people would be criticizing it. People would be criticizing the messaging and undoubtedly it would lead to vaccine hesitancy or skepticism of the process either way. So, uh, you know, it, your, your comment about um, the anti-vaccination movement uh, reminds me that um, uh, uh, not too long ago, before the pandemic, I uh, helped manage and advise a presidential candidate who got caught in a tremendous kerfuffle when she was caught on camera seemingly endorsing um, an anti-vaccination position. Um, and it caused, it was a, it was a, it was a big to do. Um, it, it helped project her image as um, a kook and not a serious candidate and it became a real problem. So there is a significant body of people in the United States who uh, for one reason or another uh, go beyond hesitancy and really won't, just won't, don't believe that vaccines are, are, that they should take vaccines. From a scientific point of view, um, how concerned should we be about the safety of the J&J &J, uh, uh, vaccine based on what, what you know about the regulatory process, what you know about the vaccine, and now what we've seen about uh, this, the pause for these six um, serious cases? So... As somebody who is a woman under the age of 50 and who did receive the Johnson & Johnson vaccine 11 days ago, um, this, is, this is personal for me. So I've thought about this quite a lot. Um, even if these six cases are associated with the vaccine and even if more are discovered, it's still going to be really a vanishingly rare event. It's terrible if you happen to be one of the unlucky people that has this happen to you, um, but it still is very, very, very rare. I mean, statistically, I'm more likely to be seriously injured or killed in a car accident driving to get the vaccination than I am from getting the vaccine. So I think that people really should keep the relative risk in mind. Um, nothing in life is risk-free. And I feel personally comforted knowing that I do have protection against COVID, uh, which presents a much greater risk of both blood clots as well as death um, to myself and to the people that I love. And that's really how I'm thinking of it. I, you know, I can't um, help people who are going to be really afraid of these very rare side effects. That that's everybody has their own risk tolerance. And it's not invalid to be concerned if you did get the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. But I am assured uh, by the fact that this does appear to be very rare. Um, I'm further assured by the reassured by the fact that this process has been so transparent 
And this actually could improve outcomes for people who do have this side effect. I was speaking with one of my colleagues who is an ER physician, and he was telling me that because uh, the CDC and the FDA announced specifically what to look for um, and provided as well guidance for clinical treatment, um, that that influenced him in treating a patient who came in with symptoms of possible CVST. Um, and, and one of those things is don't treat people with heparin, which is a commonly used anticoagulant, because one of the features of uh, the platelet deficiency is that it's likely to be made worse by treatment with heparin. It's, associated, it's similar to a condition that people have that's an autoimmune condition uh, from, from being treated with heparin. So um, I think that the transparency in even talking about how to effectively treat people who may have this rare complication is really important in giving me confidence that even in the rare and very unlikely event that this should happen to me, um, I'm going to have a better clinical outcome because of this advice that was, that was provided basically as soon as the CDC and FDA knew about it. So overall, I do have a lot of faith in, in our regulatory system. I do have faith that even if this is a rare side effect associated with the vaccine, that the vaccine is still safe. And I would say that overall the risks greatly outweigh, or the benefits greatly outweigh the risks. Many commentators have characterized where we are in the fight against the pandemic as a race between vaccination and variants. The idea being that the variants that are popping up around the world in the uh, COVID uh, illness and uh, the underlying uh, coronavirus are up against the vaccines that we have as the major tool to fight them. How do you feel we are doing in that race as we wrap up the segment with you? Are you hopeful about us winning that race? I am uh, hopeful that the U.S. is going to win that race um, just because our vaccine rollouts so far have been pretty good. Um, we got over some a, a slow start. We've now given out um, about 7 million doses of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, but nearly 200 million doses of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. And that's just continuing to pick up speed uh, we've already met uh, President Biden's goal of 100 million vaccinated in the first 100 days, and now they're shooting for 200 million. So I think that we're actually doing exceptionally well here. But one thing people really should keep in mind about the, the race between the vaccines and the variants is it's not just a two-way race. Um, vaccines are not the only thing that can help us get an edge in this race against the variants. Variants only emerge if the virus has the opportunity to replicate. Uh, and the more chances it gets to replicate, the more chances there are that a variant will emerge. Um, if we can also just stay the course a little bit longer and take those precautionary measures that we've been taking for the last 14 months. And I know this is not a popular thing to remind people of, and I'm sick of wearing masks everywhere and I can't wait to go eat inside a restaurant too. Um, but if we can keep that up just a little bit longer until more people get vaccinated, we will drive transmission down and we will be in good shape. We've been talking here on Beyond Politics with Dr. Angela Rasmussen about Johnson & Johnson and vaccines. Keep up the precautions, folks. For Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes, thanks. We'll be back shortly with another segment.
Welcome back to Beyond Politics. I'm Paul Hodes with my co-host, Matt Robeson. And we are back. We are podcast wherever you find your podcasts. You can check us out on beyondpoliticspodcast.com. And if you're podcasting us somewhere in the known cosmos, subscribe to our podcasts. It helps us. It helps you. It's lots of fun. And uh, keep tell, tell your friends about us as well. Okay, Matt, we're back after a fascinating discussion uh, with Dr. Angela Rasmussen about the J&J vaccine. Um, you know, on our roundtable show last week, uh, The Balance of Power, um, we talked about the CDC approach to uh, the J&J one and done vaccine. And we talked about the decision to pause it. Uh, and we kind of agreed that it looked like a mistake. So after hearing the good doctor, uh, give us some more information, including her own experience taking the J&J vaccine and her expert view on this pause um, and more information. What do you think? Has your thinking changed? I'll admit my thinking has evolved. I, what we said last week was this sure seemed like a high risk public relations move from the CDC and the NIH uh, with the umbrella over it of the Biden administration. We were both concerned, I think appropriately so, and this is not just our concern, but our first reaction was, boy, vaccine hesitancy is a problem. We are in a big war here. Not sure that the risk of increasing vaccine hesitancy makes up for the low number of cases that we had seen at the time. But I do think this entire incident points to why we try to take in general, the approach that we do with Beyond Politics, with all of our shows, all of our podcasts, to try to go a little bit deeper, to try and go under the hood, and to not engage too much in fresh off the press's hot takes, which literally, as we were going to air last week, this news had just emerged. So we decided to go ahead and tackle it. Not that anything we said as a first blush interpretation was all fired wrong. But what did we just hear from Dr. Rasmussen? Well, first of all, the etiology of these blood clots, the, the mechanism inside the body by which they're taking place is different from the kinds of blood clots that you see in other medical circumstances. That presents a different challenge to physicians. You treat it in a different way. You actually treat it in the opposite way that you treat other blood clots. There is a connection to some of what's going on potentially with AstraZeneca. And as Dr. Fauci has subsequently said, he doesn't believe that we're going to just at the end of this review period, at the end of this pause, go back and say, no, it's all good. We're fine as you were. He thinks there's going to be some modification in either the population for which this vaccine is recommended, the treatment regimen. So again, it all underscores why we try to be in general, a little bit more cautious about these things. Try and think a little bit more deeply. If people are looking for hot takes, there's plenty of places you can go for hot takes on the air, on the internet, in your reading, in your listening. We try to avoid that in general. But yes, I would say that my thinking has evolved. I see exactly what Dr. Rasmussen was saying. This is complicated. It does look like it, it 
there's going to have to be a change, most likely. Again, we don't know, but I see exactly what she was saying, that there are no good options here and balancing all the risks, all the downsides. I'm not so sure that what the CDC did was the wrong path. What do you think? Uh, My thinking has changed. A number of things that the Dr. Rasmussen talked about struck me. Uh, First, um, and, and this is not necessarily an order of priority, but um, as she pointed out, uh, first of all, these the approval of these drugs is under an emergency approval, but it doesn't mean that the development was rushed. As she pointed out, that instead of doing certain testing sequentially, things were tested concurrently, i.e. they happened at the same time, which helped speed up the Uh, development of the vaccines. They were kind of vaccine that had long been in development, but the concurrent as opposed to sequential uh, testing was important in getting them uh, to the stage of an emergency approval. Um, Number two, that a pause with a rollout of some important new drug is not unusual. That it is, um, it has, it's not like it's a unique event for there to be a pause with uh, this vaccine or the rollout of of other drugs. Uh, Three, as you pointed out, the particular um, ideology of what's been happening and the mechanism that that created these blood clots seemingly in women 18 to 48 was from a scientific standpoint um, concerning because of, of, of the type of clotting and the mechanism that was causing it. So that while the number may have been small, uh, the um, scientific determination to pause and review was correct. And this came, even as the doctor said that she had taken the J&J vaccine, um, she was in that uh, age range of the problematic group of females. uh, And she supported the pause, not for, not necessarily because she had experienced any symptoms or was even concerned, but because it was the right thing medically and scientifically um, uh, to do. And she also expressed confidence in the vaccine and the way it it had been uh, developed. And and since, since, um, uh, that pause, there's been some, uh, another interesting statistic um, uh, came out, which was that uh, while the vaccines all globally have been given 61% to females, uh, symptoms uh, or problems have developed in 79% of, uh, of, of females, a larger group than the number proportionally that had received the vaccines. Now, that statistic is about experiencing adverse symptoms of all kinds from the vaccines. I can't isolate that uh, and I don't have enough information, but it's interesting that there, it seems to be a pointer to increased issues around receiving the vaccines for females. Let me ask you this question, because I think we're both agreeing here that what we were saying last week, last Tuesday, was, boy, from a messaging standpoint, we're not scientists, but we both have experience in government. 
and communications. From a communications and government standpoint, we had some concerns about the approach the CDC was taking. We're now both saying, all right, look, you know, upon reflection, we see the balance of concerns here, the balance of interests. Maybe the CDC got it right. But let me ask you this broader question then. Does the administration need to take a new approach overall on public messaging and policy? Because what seems to be happening right now is what, what some people are calling COVID senioritis. You know, it's like we're almost at the finish line and people are like, yay, we won, it's over. And we're not quite there yet. Would there be a more effective way for public health leaders and elected leaders to be messaging what we need to be doing? Would there be more targeted and effective public health measures that we should be undertaking? Let me just point out uh, a, a homegrown issue of COVID senioritis. Uh, our governor in New Hampshire, Governor Chris Sununu, has announced that he is allowing the ma state mask mandate to expire on Friday. This is at a time while, yes, vaccinations are up, but numbers in New Hampshire are surging in terms of hospitalizations and cases. Um, surging. We're on a huge upward trend in New Hampshire that has now been multi-week. And at the same time, our chief elected official in the state has abandoned the mask mandate in, in defiance of advice from public health experts uh, and, and others. It, it's, 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 an un, it's an untenable and, and, and mind-boggling scenario. Um, I, I'm just, I, I'm, you know, yes, he wants to run for the Senate, but, but ending the state mask mandate as summer is coming, as cases are surging, as people are going to be coming into the state is bizarre. So does- Well, the let me throw an idea by you. Let me throw an idea by you. Derek Thompson, the writer for The Atlantic, we're name checking The Atlantic a lot, but they do great work, put out an article and we're recording this on Monday, April 19th, put out an article this morning arguing it is time to allow mask mandates to end outdoors. That one of the things that's hard, and we said this, you and I said this on this show a year ago at the, at the outset of the response to the pandemic, messaging about public health is hard because messaging about science is hard. People think that science is about certainty. It's about answers. It's not. It's about a method to arrive at things that you feel relatively more confident about, things that you feel less confident about. And what you know and what you think is always evolving. That's the scientific process. And so it's awfully hard to say one thing. I mean, we saw this with masks a year ago, right? Initially, the CDC, in part because there was a shortage of masks, the CDC said, no, nah, we don't think masks are that important. Then it was like, wow, now we really need to have masks. And then we saw that spin out into the political realm, right? And so Donald Trump and the Republicans got into opposition to masks. And now we have this huge cultural divide about masks. I saw an ad, as I'm reading this Atlantic article, I saw an ad for, for a mask that has emblazoned across it, this mask is as useless as my governor, which goes to show exactly the point we're at. So we've learned a lot over the last year. We've learned that you're 19 times less likely to transmit COVID if you're outdoors under any circumstances than if you're indoors. So what would you think if Governor Sununu 
were to turn around and say, look, we need masks indoors, people, but we need to have light at the end of the tunnel. We need to have a pathway, an off-ramp to the pandemic reality we've been living in. And the science tells us we can be pretty confident that if you're outdoors, you really don't need them. So we encourage people, go outdoors. We're opening up all the outdoor spaces. Be outdoors, no masks. What I'm asking you for is a little bit more subtle. I want you to wear masks inside. What would you think about that kind of approach? I think that makes sense. Um, it makes more sense than simply saying, uh, no, no, no more state man, no state mandate about masks. It, it, it makes more sense. And it seems that it follows what at least I, in my non-scientific way, understand about the science. It points out the challenges for elected officials and health officials to come up with um, effective communications that people in the public are going to A, believe, B, are consistent, C, are reliable, D, are practical, and E, will be followed. It's, it is challenging because nobody, nobody in the world today, even after experiencing the pandemic, uh, everybody, you know, we're, at a, we're all tired. We're tired of wearing masks. We're tired of taking precautions. We're tired of feeling constrained. We all are. And yet the message uh, that we're seeing is, hold on, people. Everything's surging around the world and surging in the Northeast is basically a hot spot. Um, the science and the numbers seem to suggest it's a long haul and we're going to have to buckle down. That's a challenging message to come from public officials that we're in this for the long haul and patience uh, patience and war footing is, is, is necessary. World War II took five years. Um, pandemic number two, after the 1918 flu pandemic, we're now in pandemic number two, seems to be uh, headed into year two. And it seems to be like a roller coaster. So, so the, I think public communication has to acknowledge the roller coaster nature of the pandemic, the fatigue that we're having, and find a way to call to action. Because really what's required is a call to action. I do think, I understand. I understand the thinking that was present. Again, this, this goes to show how thinking can evolve. The, the argument had been for a long time that a blanket mask mandate was beneficial because it reduced confusion. You didn't have to discern, well, this is okay, this is not okay. And also it promoted a sense of solidarity. But I also think the public is, as you say, beginning to wear out a little bit with how much they can sustain. I mean, they're more than a little bit, right? And also the public can probably handle a more discerning message. We don't ask people to buckle their seatbelts when they're parked in their cars. We don't ask people as a public health campaign to use condoms all the time, right? We, we ask for these kinds of measures under certain circumstances. And perhaps what people are afraid of in going to this more nuanced position is, 
letting down their guard and admitting a little bit of, you know, maybe we were over tilting a little bit on masks all the time. Maybe we were overdoing it a little bit. It's a tough position for any leader to be in. I understand that. But I, 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 do, see, I do see the argument. It, it sits pretty well with me to say, you know, that's the scientific process. We know now that outdoors is a different situation than indoors. And maybe if we give people the sense that things are opening up so that they can be disciplined in more targeted ways, we'd be better off. Well, let me ask you this question then. Now that we're seeing these surges and we're seeing confounding patterns in some cases, Florida last spring was having spring breakers show up all over the place. And everyone was saying, gosh, darn it, Florida's ruining it for all of us. Now, Governor Ron DeSantis is doing a victory lap, almost literally, going around saying, see, my approach, no mandates, no nothing, it worked. At the same time, we have a recall campaign against California Governor Gavin Newsom, who early in the pandemic was being lauded for his tough, hands-on, no-nonsense approach. We've all seen what happened to Andrew Cuomo. I don't think we want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. So let me ask you, Paul, you're a former member of Congress. Is it fair, is it warranted to grade politicians on state infection rates, surges, overall performance on COVID, or is that kind of divorced from the reality of a very complex, multifaceted infection and pandemic? So let's start at the top. Uh, I give Donald Trump a Z. I don't know if that's possible, but a Z, that is a Z on his handling of COVID. And I give uh, President Joseph Biden an A, maybe an A minus, just just because I want to be reality based, but I give him an A. Um, we are uh, under his administration going to reach targets for vaccinations well ahead. So he's done the right thing in under promising and over delivering on vaccinations. And no elected leader can really account for um, what happens with a mysterious virus that is shown itself to be incredibly clever at outsmarting our attempts, both in terms of mitigation and vaccination, to control it. So we've got all these variants. Do you hold a governor responsible for the mutation of the virus? Well, to the extent that a governor or any other elected official can take a science-based, cohesive uh, view and communicate a cohesive science-based approach following the science as opposed to wishful thinking about opening up the state, um, I, I think you can grade elected officials and governors. Um, have they acted? Uh, have they acted according to the science, or are they or are they engaging in wishful thinking? Governor DeSantis, wishful thinking. Uh, Governor Sununu, um, mostly wishful thinking. Um, with a good PR, he's done a good PR job. But I give him a, a basically a C minus, and especially now I give him a D minus. 
you bring up a good point. First of all, it is well established beyond any shadow of a doubt that President Trump's performance was disastrous. I mean, uh, Deborah Burks came out and said, we could have saved 400,000 lives probably after the first 100,000 American deaths. So that's that's pretty damning right there. I I tend to agree with you that it is worth considering by all means, the fact that viruses don't react in a completely linear way to public policy. First of all, state lines are not like airtight plastic bubbles, right? So the fact that you're in New Hampshire doesn't protect you from what's going on in the next town over in Maine and vice versa. Um, and we know that these things are multifactorial. They're, they're a little random to some extent, but I do think that what you can grade is, are you doing the basics? Are you being competent in your public policy response? Are you doing the best scientific practice that you're aware of at the time? Or are you allowing politics to overwhelm your response? I do think that there is some approximate grading that you can do on that basis. I, I tend to agree with that. So folks, wear your masks, stay safe, get your vaccinations, take the precautions, follow the science. This is Beyond Politics. I'm Paul Hodes with my co-host, Matt Robeson. Follow us on beyondpoliticspodcast.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another Beyond Politics.